Well, good morning. It's a delight to be with you and to share God's Word together with you. I'm Jonathan, pastor of Community and Connections, and uh, boy, what a special day. It's a day that we get together to look to Jesus and say, that God who is transcendent and personal is one who leads us and guides us. And we've been working through the book of Joshua, looking at God's great uh, promise-fulfilling as he leads the children of Israel into the promised land. And today we're picking up in Joshua chapter 5. Uh, if you've got your Bibles handy, go ahead and turn there. We'll be there in a few moments. Question for you this morning. Have you ever forgotten something that is really important? Like you've shown up at the airport and you forgot your passport. Something like that. Uh, or when somebody needs some ID and you cannot val validate and verify who you are. Uh, we've all been there at some point, some time, some situation or another where we have forgotten something important. Well, as a pastor, we've get, we get privileges, uh, the privilege of doing weddings from time to time. And I'm always worried about what I'm going to do or forget uh, that might ruin these special days. Fortunately, to date, uh, the worst situation I've ever had is almost tripping up the front step uh, as I walked up on stage. So, so far, so good. Uh, but there was this one particular wedding where something important was forgotten. Uh, it was a beautiful day. It was a very hot day. And uh, the bridal party and I had just entered uh, this beautiful waterfront deck uh, downtown Columbus. And we're standing in the scorching heat. And uh, I had a, an opening few comments and prayer. Unbeknownst to everyone in the audience, as we had gathered as a bridal party up front, the best man realized he had forgotten something very important, the rings. And so he communicated down the chain, and the last guy at the end, the, the groomsman at the end, during my prayer, raced out of the, off the deck, through the facility, out into the parking lot, into the car, grabbed what was needed, and raced back, and made it back in time. I don't know if that means I was praying too long, or if he was very fast, I'm not sure. But you don't want to forget something that's very, very important. Well, he was the guy that, you know, many of us were sweating, but he was the one who was profusely sweating. You don't want to forget something very, very important. Particularly at a moment like a wedding when so much excitement and so much anticipation is culminating in this grand celebration. Well, our situation today for the Israelites is something similar to that. They have just crossed the Jordan River with a mighty work of God's miraculous hand. They've had victories on the east side of the Jordan. And they are pumped. Years of anticipation and promise now about to be fulfilled as God was giving them the land. But there was something that was left undone. First things first, God said. We have to take care of some unfinished business. And that's where we're at today in Joshua chapter 5. Here the Israelites are. It's a go-get-it time. God in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 had told to Joshua, uh, Moses is dead, now then you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan into the land I am about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. Ready, set, go get it. The anticipation is high. But God says, hold on, first things 
first. We have a covenant relationship that we need to care for. If you have your outlines with you, it's our first point. And God invites the Israelites to demonstrate their faith in Him and a costly consecration, consecration is asked for. He says it's time to circumcise all of your males. Do what? God, are you kidding me? I thought we were ready to go. I thought the land was ours. I thought we, we have just seen your hand. We're ready to move forward. Your mighty hand of power has been on display. Do what? And God says we need to deal with our covenant relationship. You know, the people were melting in fear. God had brought them through the Jordan. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that the Israelites might always fear the Lord their God. Uh, the end of chapter 4 where we left off. And here we come to verse 1 of chapter 5. When now, all, now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted. And they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. And on the screen you should be able to see a map of the territory. They had just come from the east. They had just crossed the Jordan. And now they were on the doorsteps of Jericho. Their hearts were, uh, the, the hearts of the Canaanites and the Amorite kings were melting in fear. It's one thing to have them on the other side of the Jordan. They were already terrified. But now their last line of defense had been breached. They thought they might have had months to prepare, to, to get themselves ready, to, to get ready for battle. The Jordan was at flood stage, but now the Israelites were right there. They no longer had courage to face the Israelites. Ready, set, go, stop, God says. We interrupt this regularly scheduled conquest for a corporate time of circumcision. What? Well, it goes back to the covenant relationship that God had established with the people of Israel. Back to the very beginning. Back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15 and 17. It goes back to the very beginning where God had promised Abraham a great nation and a great name and a land, and that all the nations of the world would be blessed through Him, through Jesus, His offspring. It all goes back to the beginning. And God says, here is my covenant relationship with you. I will bless you, and you must obey me. The relationship, the covenant relationship in the Old Testament, a covenant that, that Jesus has come and has given us a better covenant that we, we enjoy today. But in that Old Testament covenant relationship, there was so much linked with blessing and obedience or cursing and disobedience. When the children of Israel obeyed God, His hand of blessing and favor was on them. When they disobeyed Him, they fell under His wrath and His condemnation. And we see that cycle repeated over and over and over again. And the children of Israel on the doorstep of reaching this fulfillment of God's promise of the land had some covenant matters, some covenant relationship situations to take care of. They had not kept up on their end of the bargain. It was time to get circumcised. Here was this big test. A big test. 
We saw the Lego movie uh, a few years ago with our kids, and so Lego Movie 2 is now out. It's like everything is awesome. You know that? You've probably sung it a gazillion times if you have kids. Well, Lego Movie 2 is everything is not awesome all of a sudden. And all of a sudden, everything is not awesome. God says, it's time to circumcise your males. At that time, verse 2, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. Down in verse 4, uh, all those who came out of Egypt, here was why this needed to be done. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the desert on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the desert during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved out in, about in the desert for 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So here was a situation. The sign of the covenant for the Israelites was that of circumcision. They'd wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Their disobedience had condemned them to that fate. And during that time, they had not circumcised their males. Part of their covenant relationship with God. Circumcision? Bloody. Gross. Painful. Personal. Removal of skin from the male anatomy. We're going to do that here and we're going to do that now. Are you serious, God? But that was the sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham in Genesis 17. A physical sign. A sign to set themselves apart unto God as a nation. That they belonged to Him. And that their commitment was sincere. Well, today we have signs and symbols that identify us with the body of Christ. That's why we celebrate baptism. The commands of Jesus for followers of Jesus to demonstrate to the world that they are truly followers of Him. We celebrate baptism today. If you're a follower of Jesus and have not been baptized, that's your way today to demonstrate to the world, seen and unseen, that you are a follower of Jesus. That's a much better deal than what the Israelites had to So none of the males that had been born after leaving Egypt had been circumcised. And before possessing the land, the crew needed to get into compliance. It's a big deal. But it's also crazy, isn't it? It's crazy. If you polled 1,000 military leaders, what should the Israelites do? None of them, absolutely none of them would say, stop, take a break, just lounge around for several days, and while you're at it, incapacitate your entire military force. None of them would say that. They would say they're melting in fear. They're on their heels. Attack. Go get them. And now that you have crossed that last barrier of the Jordan, and there's nothing between you, you you're basically a stone's throw away from them, the last thing you would ever do is incapacitate your fighting men. It's crazy. But God is testing His people. He's testing Joshua. He's testing the hearts of the Israelites. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? It's the same question that their parents had, had been challenged with 40 years earlier and had failed. It's an outrageous, crazy call to obedience. Will you 
trust me. Their parents had had that same question and that same opportunity 40 years ago. In Numbers 13, the 12 spies are sent out after God has brought them out of Egypt and led them to the doorsteps of Canaan. And the spies go out and, and they, they, they look at the land and they come back and say, it's fantastic, but there is no way that we can go there. We will get slaughtered. In spite of the fact that God said, I'm giving you the land. Their hearts were filled with unbelief. Unbelief, in spite of the fact they had seen the plagues in Egypt, they had experienced the Passover, they had pillaged Egypt on the way out because God had made the Egyptians favorably disposed to them and basically said, get out of here and take whatever you want. Just get out. They had come to the Red Sea and the waters had parted and God had delivered them. He had provided leadership for them, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, water and food in the wilderness. He met them at Mount Sinai and gave them his law and he had given them his promise. I will give you this land. Will you trust me? And their fathers said, no. No, God. No, I'm not going to trust you. We won't go. If only we had died in Egypt. If only we had died in the wilderness. God, why would you bring us here to only allow us to be massacred by these giants in the land? God, why would you do that? And their father said no to God. And the consequence was grave. God removed his blessing and pronounced his judgment. You don't want to enter the land, you won't enter the land. I promised to give this land to you, and now I solemnly swear, I will not. I will give it to your offspring. You will get what you wished for. You will die in the desert. You know, the consequence of sin is grave. The consequence of unbelief is horrific. They experienced death in the desert. But you realize that our sin is not in isolation. Their sin impacted others as well. The generations to come wandered with them in the desert, void of God's blessing in the land that He had promised. So now Joshua and the Israelites are here again with their backs to the Jordan on the doorstep of Jericho. And God is saying, will you trust me? Will your faith be strong? Will you obey? Will you mark yourselves with the sign of the covenant? Or will you repeat the sins of your father? It's the same question for us all today, isn't it though? It's the same question that's asked through the ages and through the decades and through the centuries. Will we trust? For God said to Abraham, it's your faith that saves you. The righteous will live by faith. It all comes back to faith. We're saved by faith. We walk by faith. We live by faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 11. It's impossible to please Him without faith. Will we trust Him? Daniel, will you trust in the midst of a pagan culture that wants to sweep you up and chew you out? The grizzled fisherman on the shore, will you leave your livelihood because this peculiar teacher from Galilee says, come and follow me? A rich young ruler, will you treasure Jesus more than the possessions that you have collected 
and the wealth that you have amassed. For the early Christians, that the prospect of becoming human torches in Nero's garden or facing lions in the Colosseum, will your faith stand? And today, our question is the same. Will we trust Him? Will we trust Him in the ordinary? Will we trust Him in the outrageous? Will we trust His Word? Will we trust His promises? What do we do when the business deal is close to being consummated and it's got a, a, a significant commission that can really help out in the, in the situation, the tight situation, but it's going to require that the truth is fudged? What do we do in those situations? Will we trust Him? When our classmates are cheating and getting ahead, and you've got a clear pathway to cheat too, and you know no one's going to know, what do you do? When your doormates or coworkers mock the biblical sexual ethic and, and the beauty of marriage as God has designed it, how do we interact with that? Do we trust Him? Do we honor His Word? in a culture that's fierce on justice and getting back and getting what's ours? Are we people who are quick and willing to forgive and to let an offense go and allow justice to be in the hands of God where it belongs? Will we entrust God with the safety of our kids? Will we seek Him first, His kingdom, His righteousness, and allow the things of this world that we know and need to be entrusted to His care? Will we truly embrace Jesus' words that say, if you want to be great, you need to be a servant? In a dog-eat-dog -dog world where we scratch and claw on top of one another to get to the top, will we be the greatest servant of all? Will we love the way that Jesus loves, a sacrificial love, not a selfish love? Will we trust Him? Will we trust His promises? In the ordinary? In the outrageous? Or we stay near and close in comfort? Will we stay on dry ground? Or will we venture out to the waters? Will we stay where it makes sense? Will we stay where life is within our capacity for control and where our strength is sufficient? What's He calling you to today? Have you been living in disobedience because you are unwilling to trust His Word? Have you been living in fear because you're unwilling to step out into what He's calling you to at risk of comfort, at risk of, of reputation, at risk of, of, of security? It's the same question we all face today. Will we trust Him? Well, Joshua and his generation chose to believe and obey God. Back to verse 3. After God had said, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again, that was because they had been circumcised before, but now uh, those who had not been circumcised needed to be circumcised. They weren't getting circumcised a second time. You get it. So Joshua made flint knives, verse 3, and circumcised the Israelites. He didn't waste any time. He obeyed. He didn't ask questions. They obeyed. It was a radical faith, a radical obedience. 
The sons who had been raised up in the place of their fathers, these were the ones, verse 7, that Joshua circumcised. They would have been uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they, where they were in camp until they were healed. Radical faith. Radical obedience. It revealed in their hearts what God truly desired most of all. It wasn't simply a circumcision of the heart that God, or the flesh that God was interested in. He was interested in a circumcision of the heart. Deuteronomy 36 says, The Lord your God will circumcise you, your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love Him with all your hearts and with all your soul and live. That's the essence of the new covenant, that God wants to come in and take our hearts and circumcise our hearts and allow them to be fully and wholly committed and offered to Him. Jeremiah says it this way, I will give you a heart of flesh and take away your heart of stone. That our hearts would be set apart for Him. Where we say, you can have it all, Lord. Take my life and let it be. It's yours. Tim Keller said it this way, here's what it means to have a circumcised heart. When what you most ought to do and what you most want to do are the same thing. And that's what God truly desires. John Newton said, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen His beauty, are joined to part no more. It's a sweet mingling of delight and duty. That's what a circumcised heart is. That's what God longs for today. A heart fully, completely, totally surrendered and offered to Him in obedience in the ordinary and in the outrageous. We find in verse 9 what the result of Joshua and the Israelites' faith and belief in obedience was. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. The filth had been washed away. Their obedience, their belief, their faith lifted them out of the swamp of the wilderness and gave them a bath. A glorious, wonderful cleansing. The shame and the reproach caused by their parents' unbelief had been washed away. The smell and the stench of their failure washed away. The consequences of their disobedience washed away. How amazing it is to know you're forgiven and you've been cleansed and you've been washed. When you've been out and you've been working in the garden or you've been working with the livestock and you're filthy or you've been working out and you're sweating and you're filthy and you're filthy and you're filthy to your bones to be washed and to be cleansed. And the reproach of Egypt, the Lord rolled away from the Israelites that day as they passed the test that their fathers had failed. Having done that, having fulfilled the sign of their covenant relationship with God, they were now prepared and they were now qualified. 
to celebrate the Passover. For a big party, verses 10 through 12. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped that day after they ate the food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate of the produce of Canaan. That's our second point in our outline. A celebration, a joyful celebration of God's provision and power. It was the Passover. Having cleansed themselves, having in obedience fulfilled the covenant sign, they were now ready to party and to celebrate. It harkens back to the Exodus and the plagues and the tenth plague being that of the, the death of the firstborn of, of everyone in the land of Egypt, both human and of livestock. But God provided a way for the children of Israel. At His command, they slaughtered a year-old lamb and sprinkled its blood over the doorposts of their homes. And that night, as the death angel came and the plague of the firstborn was ex ex executed on the land of Egypt, the angel came to the households of the Israelites and saw the blood of the lamb on the door. And he passed over that home. And the firstborn was spared. The death angel would pass over. And this was a celebration, a remembrance of that, that they were commanded to do every year. On the 14th day of the first month, no coincidence here that it was on the 14th day of the first month. But this was only the third time that they had celebrated. The first was the original time in Egypt. The second was near Mount Sinai. And here was the third time that the nation of Israel was prepared and qualified to celebrate. And they threw a party. The Passover lamb had rescued the Israelites' firstborn, but Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats cannot pay for sins. And so God has offered up His Son Jesus to be our perfect and spotless Passover lamb. And we celebrate that today. Jesus was offered up in our place as our Passover lamb so that His blood on our account would allow the death angel to pass over us. Jesus on the cross cut off for us, bloody, gross, painful, personal, because the penalty of our sin was so serious. God has offered up His Son, Jesus, as our perfect and spotless Passover lamb. Once for all. A guarantee of the new covenant in His blood. And as a result, we are no longer to live for ourselves, but for Him who died for us and now lives for us. Our old man is to be put to death, to be cut off. We must die to ourselves. We must have circumcised hearts. And it can be bloody and gross and painful and personal when our old man needs to be crucified with Christ. Because I want to live for myself. I'm selfish. I'm proud. It's so much easier to trust myself than to trust God. But that's the call to all who encounter the crucified and risen Lord. To die to self. To live for Christ. 
as Jesus, our perfect and spotless Passover lamb, has paid the price. You know, the Israelites celebrated the power and provision of their Passover of, Christ, of their Passover lamb with the Passover celebration year after year. We celebrate Jesus, our Passover lamb, each time we celebrate communion and each time we remember His work. It's why it's so important when we gather. The bread and the cup, we remember and proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We'll have an opportunity to do that again in April. I hope that you're there. But the Israelites have demonstrated their commitment to the Lord and their dedication to the covenant relationship. And now they've joyfully celebrated the Passover. They're now ready to and adequately prepared to proceed with the conquest. We find in verse 11 that the day after the Passover, that very day, the next day the manna stops. And they ate unleavened bread and produce from the land. God is physically and tangibly giving them a clean break from the wanderings in the wilderness. A fresh start. A leaving it all behind. 400 years in Egypt, many of them in slavery. Their failure in the wilderness. The rejection of the first offer of the land. And 40 years as nomads, wandering, homeless. And the manna stopping and the produce of the land signify and highlight the fulfillment of God's promise to bring them into the new land. The land flowing with milk and honey at harvest time. And the fields available to them because the inhabitants have fled in fear to their fortified cities. And here we are today. A call to leave the old life behind. To leave the past life behind behind and move into God's blessing and promise. The same should be true of us today, part of God's family. The old man needs to die. The old way of life needs to die. And we live to a new master. Slaves to a better master. Warren Wisby said, too many professed Christians contradict their profession by exhibiting an appetite for what belongs to their past life. And as the Israelites came across the Jordan and entered the new land, and the old was washed away, and they had a fresh start, a clean break from the wilderness wanderings and their disobedience, we too are to enter a new life, a whole new way of life where our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen His beauty, are joined to part no more. The sweet mingling of duty and delight where it is God who works in us, Philippians 2.13, to will and to act according to His good purpose. Because the cross makes it all possible. I love what Paul Tripp said in the Art of Marriage uh, uh, conference that we hosted here years ago. The cross offers fresh starts and new beginnings. You know, as a church family, we've experienced a fresh start and a new beginning. We've gone through a lot of transition in, in recent weeks and months. And it's wonderful to be here. What a, a blessing of God. His provision, His, His hand has been upon us. What better time than now to, to rededicate and reconsecrate ourselves and redeclare our trust in Him 
that we will renew our commitment to the mission He's called us to. He took the Israelites into the new land and He, he, he wiped out the, the inhabitants and, and they began to inhabit what He had promised them. But He calls us to mission today as well. A mission to make disciples. To bear His name to the nations. To allow His glory to be on display through our radical obedience in the ordinary and in the outrageous. So the earth might know that His hand is still powerful and that they might fear Him. The Lord our God. May we as a church family, may we as individuals today re-consecrate, rededicate, recommit ourselves to His call, to obedience to His voice, to the mission that He's given us. May we not grow lazy. May we not grow complacent. May we not be satisfied. May we not be too comfortable. May we not have hearts of fear, but may our hearts be filled and fueled with courage because the Passover lamb has paid the price and his hand is powerful and strong. And we serve a risen king, a living Lord, a king of kings, a coming king. And we get to be part of it. We get to be part of it. As we look at the passage today, we realize first things first. We have to look at the status of our relationship with God. What is the status? And what is the condition of our hearts? Have we entered into a relationship with Jesus through faith? Have we come to Him and repented of our sins turned from our own way and turned in trust and say, Jesus, it is You and You alone, Your blood and Your blood alone, Your righteousness and Your righteousness alone that I trust to pay the penalty of my sin. And if you entered in that relationship and if you allowed Him access to your heart to make it new, to circumcise your heart, to give you a heart of flesh and not a heart of stone so that we can be consecrated for the mission and live our lives in ordinary and outrageous obedience. So the world may know that the hand of the Lord is strong and powerful and that we might always fear Him. Let's do it. Let's entrust our moments, our days, our dreams, our passions, our future to His hand, His strong and mighty hand. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, I pray. I pray that You would work in us. I pray that You would have full access. I pray that we would give You full access and that we would answer the question, will You trust me with a resounding yes? God, thank You that You have provided a way you have offered relationship with You. Lord, I pray that we would, with strong and unified hearts, be willing to, to obey and to follow You wherever You lead. Thank You that Your hand is powerful and Your hand is strong. And that nothing can separate us from Your love. 
that you have promised that you will be with us wherever we go. And so, Father, in this hour, in this moment, I pray that we would rededicate, reconsecrate ourselves and our hearts to you for your glory and for your call and for your mission. In Jesus' name, amen.